0: The story of the Jewish people, and truthfully, the story of all monotheists, Christians and Muslims alike, begins with Abraham. In Scripture, Genesis chapter 17, Abraham is called the father of a multitude of nations. Him, together with his son, Isaac and grandson, Jacob, comprised the three patriarchs of the Jewish nation. His other son, Ishmael, Yishmael, is viewed as the forbearer of the Arabs, and by extension, the Muslims. And his other grandson, Esau, Esav, is viewed, certainly in Jewish sources, as the father of the kingdom of Edom, which becomes Rome, which eventually merges with Christianity when it catapults into a major world religion. Thus, in effect... Abraham effectuated a tectonic shift in the trajectory of mankind away from paganism and towards embracing monotheism, a belief widely held today by the majority of the world. Now, Abraham's personal story is given much attention in the Torah, in the book of Genesis. Uh, His story, his timeline, his narrative is almost the exclusive content of the Torah, of the book of Genesis, from his appearance in the end of chapter 11 of Genesis until his passing in chapter 25. In those chapters, we read about his many travels, his constant prophecy, his heroism, the four times that he's promised by God that him and his children will own the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, We read about him being promised to be the father of a great nation, the father of many nations, that his children will be as numerous as the dust of the earth and as the stars of heaven. We read about the very first mitzvah, the very first commandment given to the Jewish people, given to him at the age of 99 to circumcise all males, a commandment, by the way, that he fulfilled on the very same day that he was instructed. We also read about his superlative kindness with total strangers. The very week after his circumcision, he's waiting outside, trying to be kind to strangers. And finally, when three people show up, he springs into action in a tremendous way. We also read about his tireless efforts to save the sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah, From destruction. Abraham is also the recipient of the prophecy conveying the central contention of the Jewish nation, namely that we are God's chosen people and that we'll be an eternal nation that will inherit the land of Canaan, today, of course, called the land of Israel. In fact, when David Ben Gurion, who would, of course, go on to be the founding prime minister of the state of Israel, when he was asked, What claim did the Jewish people have to what is ostensibly Arab land? He lifted a Bible and said, this is our deed. So many times uh, we read in Genesis and even later, God, the creator of heaven and earth, including the land of Israel, says that I'm going to give this land to Abraham and his descendants. Now, Abraham himself did not have an easy life. Uh, Our sages enumerate the 10 distinct tests that God created for him to gauge his commitment to the cause. So, for example, Abraham, at the beginning of chapter 12 of Genesis, is commanded to abandon his family, his homeland, the land of his fathers, to travel to a faraway, unknown land. When he arrives, a massive famine breaks out and he's forced to flee elsewhere. He ends up in Egypt. His beautiful wife, she's barren for many decades, and she's also kidnapped multiple times. Abraham is commanded by God to banish his firstborn son, Ishmael, from his home, and he's also told to sacrifice his second son, Isaac, on a mountaintop. Despite all these tests, Abraham maintained his resolute faith in God. He didn't question him. He didn't repudiate him. He was committed to perpetuating this knowledge, this faith in God to his children. And as a result, Abraham was chosen to be the founder of the nation that will eventually complete the mission that he began to disseminate the knowledge of God throughout the world. Now, Abraham's backstory is not explicitly told in the book of Genesis. When we pick up his narrative in chapter 12, he's already 75 years old. He has a large following. Together with his wife, Sarah, they are essentially heading a movement of monotheism. God's already prophesying to him. Where did Abraham come from is an important question. What's his backstory? Why is he so special? Why is he meriting divine communication? So, To find those answers, we must seek out Midrashic and other traditional Jewish sources and we'll round it out with a sprinkling of some of the archaeological discoveries of his homeland. So the Torah tells us that Abraham was born in a place called Ur-Kasdim. He's one of three sons born to Terach, the others being Nahor and Haran. Now, the city of Ur-Kasdim is most likely the Mesopotamian city of Ur. Today, you'd find it in the southern Iraq near the Euphrates River. More about that in a little bit. Now, the Midrash tells us a legendary episode of his childhood, in effect, an episode that happened in his hometown, which shows us that Abraham, from a very young age, had a disdain for idolatry, which was widely practiced in his locale. And it also shows some of his character and his courage in taking initiative in implementing his beliefs despite the likely consequences. So the verse tells us in Genesis 11, 28, right when we're introduced to Abraham, we're told that his brother Haran died in the lifetime of his father in his native land in the city of Ur. Why did Haran die early in the lifetime of his father? So the the Midrash gives us a whole story that's the background to the death of Haran, but also shows us a little bit about Abraham's society that he grew up and his character. And it tells us that his father Terach was a manufacturer and merchant of idols. And one time, Terach had to go travel out of town on business or whatever. And he says, you know what, Abraham, you're in charge here. You run the shop in my stead. So someone came and he says, I want to buy an idol. And Abraham asked the potential customer, how old are you? says, 50, 60, whatever. He's an adult. And Abraham responded to him, I feel really bad for someone who's 50 or 60 years old and wants to buy a figurine that was manufactured yesterday and start bowing down to and ascribe all kinds of divine powers to this idol. So the guy was taken aback and we're in an idol shop after all. But he's like, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And he left. And all the potential clients, Abraham is sending them home. And then this one woman came with a bowl of flour that she was going to offer to the idols. And Abraham springs into action. He takes a massive hammer and shatters almost all of the idols in the facility, in the warehouse. And then he takes the hammer, the sledgehammer, and places it in the hands of the largest of the idols. And he places the bowl of flour at his feet. Of course, Abraham's father, Terek returns from his trip. And he sees total devastation to his warehouse. All them are, all the idols are shattered. And this one idol, the biggest one, is holding the sledgehammer with a bowl of of flour at his feet. So he runs over to Abram. Abram, what happened? He says, listen, Abram says, listen, I, I can't I can't deny the truth from you. What happened was there was this woman, she came with an offering of flour, and she wanted to offer it to the idols. And then all the idols started scuffling. They started finding, they started jostling each other because each one of them wanted the offering. And pandemonium broke out, and one of the idols grabbed the hammer, and eventually this massive idol destroyed and shattered and smashed to smithereens all the other idols because he wanted the offering. And, of course, Terah, his father, realized that he's making up a whole story. What, are you making a joke? What am I? Do I look like a fool? Don't you realize that that's not possible? So Abraham responds, wait a minute. Do your ears hear what your mouth is saying? How do you believe that these idols have some sort of divine power to them when you yourself know that they are essentially powerless? But here we see that the beginning of this story gives us again an inkling into the world that Abraham emerges into. His father is an idol merchant, and he's someone who's resisting. He's going against the grain, and he's even taking initiative – in breaking the idols. So what does Abraham's father do, fathers do? He takes them and brings them to the local ruler, a man by the name of Nimrod. But if we read this episode, just the beginning of the episode, it may ring as odd. But in the early 20th century, the site of the city of Ur was heavily excavated by a team of archaeologists led by Sir Charles Leonard Woolley. And what they discovered was that there was an entire city, the whole city of Ur, was dedicated to the moon god. And in the center of town, there was an enormous ziggurat, which is an ancient Mesopotamian temple tower, consisting of a lofty pyramidal structure built in successive stages with outside staircases going up and a huge shrine for idolatry on the top. So, in the middle of this town that Abraham grew up in, there's a massive cathedral of idolatry to this moon god. In fact, you you go online and you could Google, you could actually see pictures of U.S. soldiers ascending this enormous 4,000-plus-year-old structure during the Iraq War. The structure is is still standing today. Of course, there's certain parts of it that have been destroyed, but this enormous very unique uh, in its size. It's roughly the size of a football field. It's 100 feet tall. This enormous shrine to idolatry was in the center of the town that Abraham grew up in. And in addition, these archaeologists discovered written texts that list more than 5,000 names of Sumerian gods. There were all these sub-gods under the auspices of this one moon god. So the scholars debate, were these different gods? Were these different names of the same god? But regardless, this place was a hotbed of idolatry. And besides for this massive ziggurat in center of town, there were hundreds of idolatrous chapels through, scattered throughout the city. Moreover, what the archaeologists discovered, that in every house, it had a private Room, a private chapel of idolatry with a clay altar for sacrifices. So think about this. This is where Abraham grew up, a place where idolatry was the way of the land. It was the pastime. It was the culture. This is what people did. This is what they lived for. And these discoveries make sense of this Midrashic story. Terach, his father, was a manufacturer of of idols, most likely a quite a flourishing business in such an environment. So what happens? Abraham is taken to Nimrod. Now, Nimrod is the king of the region. Of course, he appears uh, earlier in Genesis. And he succeeded in uniting various cities under his single rule. He declares himself a god. He builds a massive tower to represent his godliness. And it's interesting If you look at Babylonian archaeology, you don't find a king that fits into the timeline of the biblical Nimrod, but the reason why we don't find a king by the name of Nimrod is because in their representation, he wasn't a king, he was a god, because that's what he did. He, He declared himself a god, and therefore, it's quite likely that the Babylonian god Marduk is the same as the biblical king Nimrod. And Abraham has an encounter with him. And Nimrod is quite disappointed with this young whippersnapper, this young dissenter, this iconoclast who is stirring up maybe dissent in his empire. And he tells him, okay, listen, I want you to worship the fire. So Abraham responds, well, how can I worship the fire? There's water, which is more powerful than the fire, and the water extinguishes the fire. Maybe we should worship the water. So Nimrod says, okay, fine, worship the water, have it your way. He says, well, how can I worship the water? The water, after all, is harbored in the cloud. So the cloud is stronger than the water. Fine, worship the cloud. Well, how can I worship the cloud? There comes along the wind. The wind pushes the clouds around. So worship the wind. Well, how can I worship the wind? The wind is, is subsumed in man. The wind in man doesn't, doesn't escape. So Nimrod gets fed up with the clever responses of Abraham, and he says, listen, I believe in the God of fire. You bow down to the fire, or I throw you in the fire? And of course, Abraham, in a fit of martyrdom, says, I believe in the one invisible God. I don't care what you do to me. I'm willing to even sacrifice my life for that cause. Abraham is thrown into the fire and a miracle happens. The fire has absolutely no power on him. His hair does not singe. He is totally unaffected by the inferno around him. God Saves him. Meanwhile, there's a crowd of onlookers, including Abraham's own brother, Haran. And as Abraham is about to be thrown into the fire, Haran says, listen, I'm going to wait to see. I'm going to bide my time. If Abraham wins, I'm with Abraham. If Nimrod wins, I'm with Nimrod. I'll just wait to see before I pledge my allegiance. So Abraham's thrown into the fire he's not touched. Okay, I'm with Abraham, Haran announces. announces. They say, okay, you're with Abraham, we're going to throw you in the fire too. He's thrown into the fire and he's totally burnt to a crisp. And that is how Haran died in the lifetime of his father Terach. Abraham was thrown into the fire with the intention, he was totally willing to die, therefore for him, a miracle happened. Haran was thrown to the fire with the intention of surviving, and such a person does not ha- merit have a miracle done to him. Now, there is some hubbub, a discussion about, about the fact that Abraham was born in the city of Ur, which would align with a lot of what we know about that place in the world at that time. But the Torah says he's not born in Ur, he's born in ur Kasdim. So where is this Ur custom? Is this a different place or not? That's a big discussion amongst the various archaeologists. And the problem is, is because there was a people called the Chaldeans that appear in Mesopotamia about a thousand years after Abraham appears. So some of the Bible critics question the legitimacy of the Torah. How could Abraham be... be you know, thirty eight hundred years ago or so, yet be identified with the Chaldeans who appear a thousand years later. But the Jewish sources clearly maintain that he was born most likely in the city of Ur, and Ur is the name of the city. And this uh, reconciliation is suggested by the Malbim. But the word Kastim or Kastim is not a name of the city. Rather, it's the name of the type of furnace that was used in the area. The word sid, for example, is a kind of furnace in Hebrew. And according to this particular reconciliation, the name of the town is Ur, but in the Torah it's referred to Ur Kastim, the city of Ur that uses this kind of furnace to memorialize this very pivotal event in Abraham's history and, by extension, in Jewish history, that he survived being thrown into this kind of furnace. And actually, there is some support to this theory because in chapter 15, verse 7, we read that God tells Abraham, I am Hashem who took you out of ur custom, who extracted you, who saved you from Ur-Kastham. If it's just the name of the city, it doesn't make sense to say, I saved you from Ur-Kastham. However, if it is actually a reference to that event where he was saved from the fire, it makes sense for God to say, I saved you from Ur-Kastham. Now, it's important to stress that Abraham, he's not the first one to know of the truth of monotheism. Adam, of course, who preceded him, Hanoch, Enoch, even Adam's children, Cain and Abel, certainly Noah, Noah's children, they all knew of the existence of one God and believed in the existence of one God. According to Jewish tradition, what made Abraham so unique and so special was A, that he discovered it on his own, thanks to his own mental faculties, he recognized the truth of one God as opposed to receiving it from tradition. And B, Abraham did not suffice with his own personal faith, but he undertook the mission to disseminate these discoveries and these ideals to the world. And I want to read to you a citation from the Rambam, from Maimonides, in his introduction to the laws of idolatry, where he details the backstory, the origin, the spiral of idolatry, how it mushroomed from a well-intentioned mistake. Initially, the initial idolatry was a mistaken philosophy where the people reasoned that we should accord honor, not just to God himself, but to God's creations as a means of honoring God. But that, of course, the slippery slope that snowballed into forgetting all about God and full-blown idolatry, kind of not getting off the train at the last stop, getting off a stop early to forget about God creating the sun and the moon and the stars and all that, and just honoring, bowing down, worshiping God's creations instead of God himself. And that's the beginning of that citation in the Rambam. But then he talks about what Abraham discovered, how he discovered it, and what he did with that information. So I'm going to read it in English. It's my translation, but this appears in chapter one of the Laws of Idolatry of Maimonides. And he begins by saying, All this was happening and getting worse until Abraham arrived. Once this resolute one, was weaned, so a very small child, age of three, he began to ponder with his mind. And he was young and he would think by day and by night and he would wonder, how is it possible that this whole universe should continuously operate without anyone who's making sure that it operates? It's not possible for it to manage itself he had no teacher, he had no one who informed him, but he was submerged in Ur custom amongst idolaters, the fools, and his father, and his mother, and the whole nation was, were worshiping idols, and he would worship with them. But in his heart, he was pondering, and he was understanding until he understood and accessed the way of truth, and he realized the line of righteousness thanks to his own pondering. And he knew that there's only one God and one overseer of the universe, and he created everything, and there is no other power except for him. And he also knew that the whole world were mistaken, and he also understood the roots of their mistake, and he also understood how they arrived at that error, and he was 40 years old when Abraham finally fully recognized God. So it was like a 37-year process. From the age of three, he began to think and to ponder by day and night until he fully crystallized his understanding of his philosophy and his theology at the age of 40. And once he achieved that, says the Rambam, he began to disseminate it in a great way. Once he knew and recognized, he began to to debate and engage in polemics with the people of his town of ur and to argue with them and to show them and to demonstrate to them that they're, they're going in the incorrect way and to try to show them the way of truth. And he shattered the idols and he began to inform the nation that you should not worship only the creator of the world, only him is worthy of us bowing down and offering sacrifices and libations in order so that all the creations will recognize him. And it's appropriate to destroy and to break the pagan images because they could potentially lead to people sinning. And once he overwhelmed them with his arguments, the king tried to kill him and he was saved via a miracle and he escaped to Haran. And there he made a clarion call to the whole world to inform them that there's one God in the whole world and only he is worthy of our worship. And he would go from place to place, from city to city, from kingdom to kingdom, until finally he arrived in the land of Canaan, and there he called out, in the name of Hashem, the God of the world. And the whole nation would gather around him, and they would ask him questions, and he would answer each one of them in accordance with that person's unique nature and characteristic until he brought him into the fold, and until... Thousands and tens of thousands people joined the movement of Abraham and he instilled in their heart this important principle, and he also authored books to this effect. So this description creates creates for us like a persona of who Abraham was and what he did. He's a pondering young man. He's curious. He has an agile and brilliant mind, but most importantly, he's an independent thinker. He's a truth seeker. He's willing to go against the grain to discover and promulgate ideas that were so very distant from the conventional wisdom. He was willing to challenge the universal assumptions. Wait a minute, he asked himself. These people believe that these figurines that they themselves created harbor divine powers? Now for us, looking back at those people, those idolaters of 3,800 years ago, we, we laugh at them. But it does demand a degree of intellectual honesty and a willingness to be ridiculed when that is what everyone around you believes. Perhaps I can even say, you know, in our world, people believe that humans came from apes or that elephants were stretching to reach the higher tree and became giraffes or that inanimate matter can magically be transformed into animate matter without any divine cause. Those are beliefs that are accepted by a lot of very intelligent people. And I think those ideas are equally ridiculous to the notion that Abraham was rejecting in his time. And just like we are mocking those idolaters of yore, I think it's quite likely that future generations will mock our Generation for believing such ridiculous ideas that life can just spontaneously evolve without God. But it demands a certain kind of character to not conform to the madness of the era and to champion unpopular ideas and to question presiding notions, to go against the grain, even if it means facing death threats, and that's what Abraham did. He was a true believer and was driven to change the world, even if it meant that he would die for that cause. Abraham was brazen, was defiant, was bold, was audacious, and these characteristics, they're implanted in his descendants, which is why Jews are invariably at the forefront of all kinds of revolutions, all kinds of movements that change the world. That's spearheaded quite often by his descendants. He began this process of improving and changing the world, fixing everything, to olam, and that became inherent in the nature of his children. And even, dare I say, innovations in all kinds of fields, such as technology and science and biology, things like that, Jews have the Abrahamic gene of being willing to challenge the status quo and imagine a better world and better solutions than what exists at the time. But Abraham doesn't just keep his ideas to himself. He does speeches, debates, he writes books, whatever it takes to broadcast his discoveries. We read in chapter 12, verse 7 and verse 8, that once he arrives to Israel, He builds an altar, moves to a different town, builds another altar. So Rashi understands that to mean that he prayed. What does the Ramban say? The Ramban says that these altars he would use as a platform to spread his message. He would build an altar, doing a religious ceremony, gather a crowd and give them a lecture and bring them into his team and then move on to a different town and just go from place to place, teaching the world and changing the face. Of the world. And Abraham was also someone who would, like we said, take do whatever it takes, but specifically try to use kindness as much as he could to influence others. So for example, in chapter 21, 30, 33 in Genesis, we read that Abraham planted an Ashel tree in Beersheva, and he called out, in the name of God, God of the world. So the Talmud says something very very interesting. It says he called out, but really what it's trying to tell us is that he made others call out. How would he use this Achel tree? How would he use, which, which the Talmud understands, that Eishel stands for the Aleph, the first letter of the word Eishel, is Achila, which means food. The second letter, the Shin, is for Sh'tia, for drink. And the third is for Levaya, for accompanying. He would use this three aspects of kindness, give people food, give them drink, accompany them. He would use that to call out the name of God. He had, he built on the crossroads, he built a kindness factory. All the travelers would stop by his house and he would give them free food and free drink and free accompaniment. And they would be so appreciative, they'd thank him. Thank you, Abraham, for all your kindness. Why are you thanking me? Did I make this food? Did I make this drink? You have to thank God. And kind of he would, he would soften them up with kindness and then in a sweet, pleasant way show them the existence of God. And they would buy into it. So Abraham uses all these kinds of ways, all these kinds of platforms and media to influence the world and to disseminate the message. Of monotheism, he didn't have an easy life. Like we mentioned earlier, he faced major tests, 10 to be precise. And these tests are building Abraham as an individual and, by extension, the Jewish nation, which are going to absorb these characteristics into the model individual and nation that are going to partner with God, so to speak, to bring the world towards completion. He suffers from infertility. He has to flee to Egypt with the famine. He's thrust into a world war. There's five teens against four teens. His nephew and brother-in-law Lot is kidnapped. Sarah suggests that he marries Hagar, her maidservant, and they bear Ishmael, which brings with it all kinds of domestic discord. Now, there's an interesting teaching that we're told about these tests that Abram faced. In the book of Pirkei Avot, in the Mishnah, it tells us two successive teachings about Abraham. The first teaching is that there's 10 generations from Noah till Abraham. The second teaching is that there's 10 tests that Abraham, our father, was tested. So there's two successive Mishnahs teachings told about Abraham. In one, he's told Abraham... In the second, is called Abraham, our father, who was tested 10 times. Abraham, our father. With respect to these tests, he's our father. We are biologically, genetically linked to him with respect to these tests because these tests demonstrate the building of the spiritual fabric of our nation. With respect to these tests, he's our father. So, for example, he's thrown into the fire he's imbuing us with an inclination for martyrdom. He is the origin, for example, of the willingness that we see many times throughout Jewish history to forfeit all and travel to the land of Israel. And all the stories that were told about Abraham, they're not just isolated episodes. They're instructions and lessons for us. So for example, there's many of these, but just a few, were told in chapter 12, That when he's traveling from place to place, he pitches his wife's tent before his own tent. It's a nice lesson that even though you're tired, but first you pitch your wife's tent and then you do yours. We're also told that while he was in the midst of a prophetic experience with God, three weary travelers appears and he tells God, wait a few minutes, I have to go tent to them and I'll be right back. Which the Talmud says that we learn from this a lesson that welcoming guests supersedes conversing with God. We're also, we also see how he prays for the sinners. Again, an idea that became very deep seated in the Jewish consciousness that we try to help other people. We don't just abandon the sinners, let them die. No, what do we do to help them? Abraham is someone who really embodies what it means to be, what's the ideal human that the Torah urging us to fulfill, and we look back thousands of years later and try to emulate. He's someone who is a paragon of faith. He's discovering monotheism. He's spreading monotheism, but he's also a paragon of kindness. He's someone who is engaged with the people, sweet and kind, the complete package. Now, there are many, many teachings that we find in the sages with respect to Abraham, and we can't go through them all, but I want to go through Specifically, one that really exposes his spiritual accomplishments. The Talmud, in the book of Yoma, on page twenty-eight, says that Abraham studied the entirety of Torah. Even though, if you read the whole the whole Bible, the whole Torah from beginning to end, we read in chapter twenty of the book of Exodus that. Abraham's descendants, they're a whole nation, There are millions of people, they're at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and that's when they start getting the Torah. Yet, the Talmud says, no, no, Abraham had it hundreds of years prior. What is this idea? What is the idea the Talmud is telling us that Abraham had the Torah hundreds of years prior? Where did he study from? So the Midrash, another Talmudical era book, tells us two seemingly baffling answers. The first answer is that Abraham studied Torah from himself. The second answer is that Abraham's two kidneys transformed into two Torah-spouting jugs of water that taught him Torah. It's a very bizarre imagery here. Abraham studied Torah from himself, or his innards turned into Torah sources. But what this means is, is that everyone already has, every human already has a deep connection and relationship with God already in their soul. The soul, if you were to isolate it, already knows all of Torah. The problem is that it's buried deep within a person. There's all kinds of layers separating man from his soul. The soul is like the kidneys. It's buried deep within someone. But if you remove all the layers, you could expose and unearth the innate soul that exists within a person, bring it to the surface, and through that, tap into its Torah. Abraham, he studied Torah. Well, Torah wasn't given. Torah was still in the heavens. Yes, Torah was still in the heavens, says the Talmud, but Torah was also within Abraham's kidneys, within him. And he studied Torah from himself. Alternatively, Alternatively, he started from his kidneys because he, he tapped in to his soul that was inherent within him by removing all the things that were disrupting uncovering it from all the layers separating him from his soul. So that's just quite briefly a little bit of what the, Talmud, the Talmuds take on Abraham. Now as a symbol of his personal perfection, what does the Almighty tell him? The Almighty commands him with the mitzvah, with the commandment of bris of circumcision. What is the circumcision, says the Talmud? You have to cut off, you have to remove the foreskin, and you have to reveal the crown. So that, that's how the Talmud describes this mitzvah. And this is, in, in effect, what Abraham did. It's almost as if each human has within that human the crown of God but it's hiding, it's covered. It's, it's, it's concealed by other things. And your mission in your world is to remove those contaminants that are covering your soul and bring your soul to the surface. Expose the crown of God to the world. That's our mission as individuals. And that is our mission as a collective. God created the world, but hid himself within the world. And the Jewish mission, what Abraham began is to expose God to the world. He did that personally, and he began the process of doing that on the larger scale. Therefore, this mitzvah, this commandment of circumcision, which is all about this symbolism of cutting away the things that are exposing, that are are concealing what is God in the world, so to speak, that mitzvah, that commandment is given to Abraham. He is the one who began this process of revealing God in the world and therefore the mitzvah that symbolizes that it's appropriate that he's the one to receive it. At the age of 100, his wife Sarah is 90. His son Isaac is born. Isaac is significant with respect to this mitzvah because he is the first to be born from a circumcised father and he's the first to be circumcised at eight days. Right before Isaac is born, God tells Abraham that although you already have a son, Ishmael, and he indeed will be the father of a great and numerous nation, it's Isaac that's your true heir. He's going to be the father of the nation that will complete what you began and inherit the land of Israel. Isaac is born, and right away there's tension. Abraham's primary wife, Sarah, and her son Isaac are in the household. And Abraham's secondary wife, Hagar, and her son, the older son, Ishmael, are in the same house. And Sarah notices that Ishmael's a bad influence on Isaac. So she commands Abraham to send him away. And this created one of the most difficult tests in Abraham's life. He is being compelled to act in a quite unkind way by banishing his own son. And even more troubling is the episode of the binding of Isaac, God instructs Abraham to offer Isaac, then age 37, as a sacrifice on Temple Mount. And Abraham indeed would have gone ahead with it, if not for a last second divine intervention. Abraham is the paragon of kindness, yet he was commanded to commit horrifyingly unkind and arguably barbaric acts. So now just as a quick disclaimer, These tests, the test of the banishing of of Ishmael and the binding of Isaac, they truthfully demand a more complete treatment. But briefly, we can see how they demonstrate that within Abraham, the sole source of morality was God. Abraham was kind. But why was he kind? He was kind because that was the will of God. Thus, when God tells Abraham To do something unkind, he fulfilled it with the same eagerness and excitement and passion as he performed all his acts. Both his kindness and his unkindness stem from the same source, and thus he demonstrated by passing those tests that he was obeying the will of God, and that was his sole motivation. The Abrahamic destiny is when the entire world Shares the same perspective as Abraham. We have a name for that. It's called Messiah. Messiah is when the whole world views reality the same way that Abraham did, recognizing that God's the only power and only God is worthy of our worship. Abraham began this mission, but clearly we see already in his lifetime that achieving this mission is not going to be very easy nor seamless. He had tens of thousands of followers in his lifetime, but they're gone from history. And even Abraham's own children didn't exactly follow his way. His son Ishmael, not a great candidate to bequeath this responsibility. Isaac was the spiritual heir, but he had a son Esau that kind of went a little bit off. Now, incidentally, both Ishmael and Esau became fathers of nations that maybe unwittingly will partner with the Jewish people to disseminate a close version of the Abrahamic principle to billions of people. Of course, Ishmael, he is the father of the Muslims with their billion-plus adherents. And Esau, like we said earlier, in Jewish perspective, is the father of the Christians. But for us, for the chosen people, the third time's the charm. Jacob, the third generation after Abraham and Isaac, all of his children are going to be righteous and going to comprise The Jewish nation. We call ourselves the chosen people. But it's important to stress we're chosen for a reason and we're chosen for a purpose. The reason is Abraham. Abraham displayed superlative self sacrifice and commitment in choosing God. And therefore, God said to him, Your children will complete what you began. That's why we're the chosen nation. What are we the chosen nation for? We're the chosen nation to finish what Abraham began. Our mission is to be the vanguard of the effort to bring God into the world and to complete what Abraham started. We are the ones who will be the forces to bring the world to Messiah, to universal acceptance of the Abrahamic principles, to finish what Abraham started. There's going to be a lot of perks along the way. We'll have the Torah, we'll be a natural nation, we'll have the land of Israel. God will bless those who bless us and curse those who curse us, which is a pattern that we see throughout Jewish history. When nations are mistreating the Jewish people, they tend to dip as, as a result. It's not going to be easy. Abraham himself is told there's going to be a 400 years of enslavement. We're going to be subject to many upheavals throughout our history, but ultimately We'll prevail and the Rambam incidentally tells us that these other companion religions these other offshoot religions the christians and the muslims they're there by design to help us achieve our goal put another way it's it's uh, it's easier to go from three gods to one god than it is to go from 30,000 gods which is what the romans believed in and the muslims before they were Muslims were also pagans. It's easier to go from that to one God. In short, Abraham was the most influential and transformative man in greater human history. I would argue ironically, that he's not the most important figure in Jewish history, but is the most important figure in world history, because his ideals and his principles that he developed and honed continue to influence and inspire. The world, the idea of progress, the idea of working towards a conclusion, the idea of bettering the world, this universal vision of a world that's perfected and completed, all those ideas come from Abraham. And in my view, the world that we have today is well on its way to completing what he started. Next week, we're going to look at his son Isaac. A very different character, but the next vital pillar in constructing the identity of the nation.